Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are still in our question series. Today's question is, why is it important for Christians to talk about race? Before we get started, uh, my question for you all is, when did you first discover you are the race that you are? So we went with that question, and then we kind of said, we're talking about race. Does anyone have some more questions? Uh, Another question was submitted, which if you grew up in a Christian environment or you went to a private Christian college, not dropping any names, but I went to one, um, and there was this idea, right? There was this question of like, why why should Christians talk about race? Why why should we participate in this conversation? And so we're going to address those two questions this morning. But first, I want to talk about some tension I felt this week as we uh, prepared for um, our time together. I was telling Justin, so Justin's gonna come up later and do the Q&A response time with me. Justin's the homie, we do, he's another race scholar, we do trainings together, we talk about this, this is like life. Um, And I was like, okay, once I found out we're doing a Sunday on race, I'm like, it's a 90 minute unpacking racism workshop and we're going in, we're going all the way, we're dismantling everything and everyone's gonna understand all the nuances from 1492 to today of US racism. Um, And we're like, yeah, so like Monday, and then I'm like, and then slowly it started to tone down because I realized in my mind of being in so many like white evangelical uh, communities, the idea in my head was like, I have this one chance to say everything I've ever thought about racism. (laughs) So hold on, because they're not gonna let me talk about racism. Like, who's gonna let me? Like, I'm the pastor here. You know, they're like, whatever, (laughs) but like, this is an idea in my mind, right? From being in the of like, all right, this is it. We we go hard or go home. And um, it took talking to Justin and processing and laughing and the whole week to get to a place where we're like, no. We get to start a long conversation about race today because we are always about the long conversations here at New Abbey. We know that healing takes, is a long conversation. We know that nothing happens in an instant. And nothing happens in an instant, I'm surely not gonna dismantle racism in a sermon. But what we can do is set the context and give some language for us to engage in this in a way uh, that makes sense for our community and create a space for us to not act like this isn't happening, like this isn't an issue, like we don't live in the US in 2018, like a year ago white supremacists weren't marching and like this morning, like there weren't uh, Unite the White rallies, okay? So we're not gonna solve everything, we're not gonna solve anything. We are gonna start a conversation that I hope leads to more conversations and more conversations. And that was helpful for me, so I'm not gonna talk for 90 minutes, just to say that aloud. <laughs> so this first question, right? These first two questions of why is white theology normal and why should Christians talk about theology? Well, it's very simple. In Jesus' entire ministry, right, he's creating the framework for this kingdom, this counter-narrative that is different than the narrative of the day. And a huge part of that is amplifying voices that weren't heard, 
Oh, you don't think children are worth anything? I say, bring in me, let's listen. Oh, you don't think women are valuable? That's who I'm gonna use to fund my ministry. Oh, you go around Samaria? I'm gonna go through Samaria. Not only that, I'm gonna write a story about a good Samaritan. Everyone you're not listening to, I will amplify their voice because that's important. And when we get to theology, if we look behind me, we have one voice that has been amplified above the others. And that's important because Jesus is telling us, when one voice is amplified over the others, do your best to amplify the other voices. In whatever your context is today, it's not Samaritans, it looks like it's these voices having theological power in how we shape our faith. That's why we say every morning that the person who you're sitting next to is different because, or is important, that it's different for you because they, uh, their story tells a bigger story of who God is. God? <laughs> Confirmation. This is important. I'm going to get you later, though, because uh, I'm going to sing right now. I know. You're not going to be able to get to it. It's this far corner. Yeah. <clears throat> When you do church in an office building, I'm gonna make this a metaphor later for race in America. So what has happened is we have elevated a voice and then we have an entire uh, scripture and narrative that is flipping a kingdom upside down and changing the narrative and saying, whoever you don't listen to, it's probably important that you listen to them. Okay. So what has happened and what do we do? Willie Jennings is uh, at Yale, and he talks about this idea of a white theological imagination. So now we're, let's get into some of the maybe why this back wall looks the way it looks. Uh, the Europeans at some point uh, had this idea, this white theological imagination, as he calls it, that they had replaced Israel. They were now the children of God, um, and that they uh, were the chosen ones. And so what that meant for them was important, but what's really important is what it meant for their interactions with anyone who wasn't like them. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of colonization, <laughs> but um, this is all derived, so you can't take away race out of theology. You can't take away our understanding of how we treat people who are different from us than the way that our theological framework, especially in this country, has been founded and tied and created. And so this white theological imagination is what led to some of the racial atrocities that we see in our world and leads to things happening like this. And we talk about white supremacy a lot. We imagine Charlottesville, certainly. That is white supremacy. But here's a definition uh, that I want to talk about today that I want to use. This is a quote from someone who I couldn't remember, but there are quote marks, so you know I didn't <laughs> plagiarize it. White supremacy is more than the idea that whites are superior to people of color. It's the deeper premise that supports this idea. The definition of whiteness as the norm or standard for human, and people of color as a deviation from that norm. So it's a lot more subtle, right? How we end up with something looking like this isn't necessarily always tiki torches and marches. It's things like this. When I go to Target, and I'm going to buy shampoo, Carol's daughter specifically. <laughs> God? Um, there's a, yeah, that's like, <laughs> let us keep the power. Um, so 
the ghost of whiteness past is like moving things around. So I go to Target and there's hair care, hair care, hair care. This is a bunch where all the shampoo and conditioner and gel and mousse and all that is. The aisles just say hair care. And then there's this little corner at the end of the last hair care aisle that says multicultural hair. <laughs> this is a reminder that my hair is not normal. Hair is not just hair, by the way, in case you're wondering, there's a standard for hair, and that standard for hair comes out of the standard for beauty, and that standard for beauty comes out of whiteness as being the norm. In case you're wondering, when I was in fifth grade and I decided that probably my future was gonna be in tap dancing, and I got into tap, by the way, it wasn't. Uh, our final performance had a fog machine that left me in a full asthma attack. Um, <laughs> but before that, <laughs> I made it to the performance and they said, what you need to do for this performance is you need to get the sparkly leotard and then after that you need to get nude leggings. Nude leggings, by the way, are leggings that are what? Skin color. Whose skin color? Not mine. I'm up there dancing and my legs are three shades lighter than the rest of my body. <laughs> now, why nude doesn't match me is because nude comes up to the standard of what skin color looks like and the standard for what skin color looks like comes out of whiteness. If you're wondering if I bump and scrape my elbow today and I go and I put a Band-Aid on, will that Band-Aid match the color of my skin? No, because that Band-Aid is designed to be camouflaged and so no one knows you're wearing a Band-Aid, but camouflage is derived from the uh, norm for skin care and the norm for skin color is derived from whiteness. And in case you're still wondering, when I was little and I got a pack of crayons and I wanted to color a person, there were crayons that said brown, crayons that said red, blue, purple, and then there was a crayon that said what? Flesh. And what color was a flesh-colored crayon? Was it the color of whiteness? Yes. This isn't just about people marching with pitchforks. This is about a subtle idea that whiteness is the norm and everything else is other. And we say in here all the time, the minute you other someone, the last domino to fall is violence. The moment that someone becomes other, the last domino to fall is violence. They matter less. So we have this structure. And I got to talk last summer. Someone asked the question, why do we refer to God as he and not she? Still one of my favorite sermons, girl power. And I use this quote from Mary Daly, and she says this, when we make God man, we make man God. If we see God as a man, that has to change inherently the way that we see men. Well, when we make white normal, then everything else is what? Less than its other. No, you don't need nude tights, you need special brown tights because it's different. No, you don't need hair care, you need multicultural hair care. No, you don't use a flesh color uh, crayon, you use the brown color crayon. You're different, you're normal, and this is the norm. And if we don't think that that somehow interacts with our faith, we are really misguided. This impacts the entire way in which we see ourselves, whether you are white, whether you are a person of color. It interferes with the way you see yourself, the way you see others, the way you see God, and the way we create community. I'm about to go to the movies next weekend to see a movie called Crazy Rich Asians. And never in my life have I gone to the movies and sat down and the cast was Asian. That should be surprising. <laughs> I'm 32 years old, and movies are older than me, a lot older than me. 
And so when we create this white theological imagination that happened a while ago, planted some really, really deep-rooted trees that are in full blossom and full bloom. So that is a little bit about what white being normal, this idea of white supremacy, this white theological imagination looks like in narrative form. That's what it looks like in my life. But let's go back a little bit and see what it looks like in the history of how this country came to be. A little bit of stats for you. The first, in 1860, slaves were worth $3.5 billion, making them the single largest financial asset in the entire US economy worth more than all manufacturing and railroads combined. The thing that built our economic structure was that people like me were property. And that property was used to build and to expand and to create this country that we love so much. And by the way, $3.5 billion is how much money Jeff Bezos made since I started this sermon. There's got to be something wrong with that. So in 1863, if you invested $100, the average annual inflation adjusted return in the stock market has been around 7%. Whatever that even means, the next year, it's worth $107. In 1884, you got $443. You keep going. In 2018, you have $3,584,970. In case you're wondering, 1863, what happened in 1863? The Emancipation Proclamation was signed. You think free slaves, newly freed slaves, had 100 bucks to just invest? No! 60, the next one, yeah. I'm trying to guess it as I'm like 60. 62% of household wealth in this country was derived from household residents, meaning land ownership is the game changer. If you want generational wealth, you own land. And in case you're wondering why people were the only people that were allowed to own land for many, many hundreds of years. I like to think of this whole thing like this. America is a game of Monopoly. And Monopoly, that game started in 1492. They played approximately 1,000 rounds of Monopoly using other pieces, other players, to build the hotels, to buy the property, to do all these things, wrote the rule book, know the rules, and then said, all right, go ahead, jump in the game. You already bought all the stuff. The only thing's left is the baby blue part that nobody wants. And by the way, you're coming back about gentrify that. We can't even afford it. <laughs> Oh, I love Park Place. Okay. <laughs> this is important because race and racism in the US and a white theological imagination and who we listen to and what voices we amplify isn't just a personal problem that some people have. It's a foundation of a structure, that structure for the country that we live in and the churches that we go to and the way in which we understand God. Some people are really mad about this and they should be. There is privilege so deeply rooted in our history, and we just have to acknowledge that. If we run away from that, we keep doing it. There is a corrupt system at work, and you either work to dismantle that system or you are a part of the system. Those are the two options. So let's not pretend like these things don't exist and didn't happen, and then maybe, just maybe, we can start tearing down this house brick by brick. And I always like to say that when it comes to issues of privilege, white privilege does not mean that your life hasn't been hard. It does mean that race hasn't been one of the things that's making it harder. Can we acknowledge that for people of color in this country, our voices haven't been heard? Austin Channing Brown has a great book called 
I'm still here. Something, 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 and something. Um, <laughs> and she's a black woman. Her name is Austin. And she writes about being upset that her parents named her Austin because she's confused for a boy all the time. And people are like, why is your name Austin? So finally she asked her mom, Mom, why did you name me Austin? And her mom said, because one day you're going to apply for a job. And I just hope that they think you're a white man long enough for you to make it to the interview. Because let's talk about names for a second. And I joke about this all the time. But let's talk about what we give names. Shaniqua, Janiqua, Cavante, Levante. Those are hard names to pronounce, but Daenerys Targaryen and Tyrion Lannister and Hermione Granger are cool names? <laughs> Hermione. <laughs> so these are cool names. These are names that we will do the work to pronounce. We will do the work to know the difference between a Daenerys Targaryen and a Tyrion Lannister. But we can't say, the difference between Cavante and Levante, because these are ghetto-ass names. How? This is how. Everything sits on the structure of this idea that came about a long time ago, before we were here, that said, white is normal. And if you're not looking, you will miss it, because if you are white, the entire system is designed so that you don't see it. So if you open your eyes and see it, you have to address it. So. I forgot I was going after that. <clears throat> I just remember writing notes. I was like, Daenerys, Targaryen. Um, names, everything's built. Yes, OK. Here's my next point. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times in a conversation about race, I feel like the natural tendency is to jump to solutions. OK, great. So what are we going to do? And I love that I'm talking about this at New Abbey because New Abbey is already primed to know what. There is no jumping to easy solutions. The only way, through, the only way out is through. There is hard work far before solutions. There is, uh, like Corey said last week, which I loved about cleaning your own mirror, that's the hard work. You have to understand how this has impacted the way you see yourself, your community, God, your faith, and everything around it. And if you are not willing to do that work, then solutions are already out of your reach. So when I got up here at first and I was like, 90 minute unpacking racism workshop, no, I think the answer is, how do we just get some eyes open to starting to do the hard, long work? I'm not gonna give you solutions. I love this question series because I haven't answered one of the questions I've been asked. <laughs> I'll give you more questions. Um, and those questions are about your own personal deep work. How do we confront and dismantle a system that tells some of the people in this room, you're just normal? I remember being in high school and people would be like, oh, what are you? And I'd be like, I'm half black, half Mexican. And they'd be like, oh, I'm just normal. That's how deep it is. I'm just a normal white guy. No, you're not. You're a white person. And that means something. And if you're not aware to see what that means, you're participating in the system. But the second question is this. How do you feel right now? <laughs> um, and what questions do you have? So get back in the groups you were in earlier, and we will come back together in a few.
Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.